Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Wassalatu wassalamu ala Sayyidina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam tasliman kathira. Alhamdulillah. We're here again with another session on sacred text messages and looking at a very important text that comes from our Prophet ﷺ in which he told us that this hadith was related by Imam Abu Dawood and Imam At-Tirmidhi. Abu Dawood and Imam At-Tirmidhi are two of the, the great collectors of hadith from the six famous or what they call in English canonical collections, Kutub al-Sitta or the Siha sitta uh, Abu Dawood, it's said that when he went to, came into Iraq to relate hadith, there were 70,000 inkwells in the masjid, 70,000. That's how extraordinary he was. He, w- he was like many of the muhaddithun, he was from the Persianate part of the Muslim world. But he relates a hadith in Imam al-Tirmidhi from Abu Darda. And Darda, for people that are interested in Arabic, Darda is the girl without teeth. So the Adrad, which is a nice, the dentals, D is from the dentals. You know, they're called, it's a dental in the um, linguistics. So Darda is the one without teeth. So قال سمعت رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم يقول من سرك طريقا يبتغي فيه علما سرك الله به طريقا إلى الجنة. Which means whoever sets out on a path, and suluk is a term that they used for a spiritual path also, but whoever sets out on a path seeking knowledge, and the ilman here is nekira, you know, it's not al-ilm, it's ilma, who seeks a knowledge, because there are many types of knowledge and there are many knowledges that are fard kifaya, like engineering or medicine. So this could include, if their niyyah was sound, then it would include their intention being sound, it would include other knowledges. And then the Prophet ﷺ was reported to have said, that Allah will facilitate him a path to paradise. So seeking knowledge is a path to paradise. And even the angels lay down their wings out of contentment for the seeker of knowledge. طالب العلم, the seeker of knowledge. And verily the scholar is one who the everything in the heavens and the earth, even the, the, the fish in the ocean, ask forgiveness for a scholar, which is an extraordinary... The fact that they're asking forgiveness because scholars are human, so they'll always have shortcomings, and, but because they're so important, they're asking istighfar for them so that Allah forgives them. It's really extraordinary that he chose la yastaghfiru. You know, they're asking forgiveness for him. So imagine if the angels and the, even the whales in the ocean are asking forgiveness. Is Allah going to forgive the scholar? It's quite stunning, really. And then the Prophet ﷺ said, and the preference of the scholar over the devotee and the abid is, is somebody who their practice is not so much knowledge-based as it is devotional. So these are people that very often they don't have a lot of knowledge. They have to have farda'in, but they get enough knowledge to suffice them in their religion. And then their focus is on devotion, which is really important. And there are people that that's their path to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But 
the scholar's preference over those. In another hadith, the Prophet ﷺ said that it's like the preference of me over the least of you. So it's, this is a huge difference. And the moon is very important in terms of the heavenly bodies because the moon, we have our calendrical measurements by the moon. We have the moon to guide us and many, many other things. Also the, the relationship to the moon and the tides. These are all aspects of the importance of the moon in fact, arguably, scientists would say without the moon, there wouldn't be life on Earth as we know it. So the moon is a very important part of our solar system, and, and particularly for us. So the Prophet ﷺ then said, The scholars are the inheritors of prophets. The scholars did not leave behind as a legacy gold or silver. Dinars are gold and dirham is silver. Inma warruthu al-ilm, but they left behind knowledge. فَمَنْ أَخَذُهُ أَخَذُ بِحَظٍ وَافِرٍ. And there's a story that Abu Huraira told the people in the marketplace that the Prophet's uh, inheritance was being distributed in the masjid, and everybody ran from the marketplace. And when they got there, there were halqad dhikr. There was the circles of knowledge, and they were saying, "Where's the inheritance?" He said, "It's in these circles." This is what the prophets leave behind. So that's a really important hadith because, one, it focuses on the fact that the path to Jannah that Allah will facilitate for you is the path of knowledge. And the Prophet ﷺ said, I was only sent as a teacher. So he is a teacher. And then he was taught, So the Prophet ﷺ himself was a student of a teacher who was less than him. And very often... Teachers will have students that end up being greater than them, more brilliant, produce more. So that's not unusual in the worldly realm. But in the other worldly realm, Jibreel taught the Prophet, but the Prophet was above him in stature. So this is our Prophet, he was a teacher, and he spent his life teaching. What we have, really, if you look at all the hadiths, they're all teaching hadiths, and his seerah is all lessons. And then he brought the Qur'an which is the greatest teacher for us because it's the words of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And so seeking knowledge is really important. And this should be done for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The Prophet said that one of the signs of the latter days is that people would seek knowledge for other than the sake of Allah. In other words, they would pursue for worldly reasons and not for otherworldly reasons. And this is when you lose the theocentricity of a culture. So our civilization was very theocentric. It was centered around the divine and the sacred. And that's why everything they did was infused with the sacred. They began all of their projects, Bismillah. And if the amazing hadith that many, many books of our scholars mention the hadith that whatever does not begin Bismillah is cut off from blessing. Now, think about like who started the internet. Think about who started all these things. Who was the first person to work out rocket fuel. All these things were started without Bismillah. Whereas the Islamic civilization was a civilization where all of the sciences were done Bismillah. All of their books started Bismillah. And so there was so much Baraka. When you look at this civilization, which undeniably has great achievements, but look at the overall effects of it. We have to wonder because so many things that come out of these inventions and, and these things, we see the downside, the negative side. So it's really important for Muslims to remember that we are theocentric. And I would argue 
that the Christians before this period, this very materialistic period, they also were people that did begin things in the name of Allah. So they did say, you know, they would make prayers to God and things like that. And so I'm sure they got a portion of that uh, in doing that. But people that are materialistic or atheistic, which many of these modern scientists are, you have to wonder. And one of the things that really struck me about when I was a student studying about Vietnam and reading about the napalm, I just thought about what kind of a human being could develop napalm, like a a weapon that burnt the skin off of people. I just, I really had a really hard time grappling with that just as a normal human being. Like I could not imagine something. But then what really bothered me was the villagers, they started putting these ponds in the villages. They would dig pits to put water because they found out that if you jumped in, it would stop the effects of the napalm. So somebody here, probably in like somewhere like New Jersey in some lab, worked out waterproof napalm. I mean, who would do that? It's just very strange. And the Prophet said only Allah can use fire to punish. So it's a horrible thing for a human being. And you just wonder, those scientists go home and they have dinner and they have their wives and their families. It's very strange. But I just wonder what's going to happen to them in the afterlife. But... All those things happen because people don't are no longer theocentric. And I think a lot of the crises in the Muslim world is being affected by this deep materiality, this materialism that has overwhelmed the Muslims. So where do we begin? Well, we begin at the beginning. And the beginning is language. So this is where everything begins. And this is why the first thing that a child does after it really learns to crawl and begin to walk. It learns to talk. And it's very interesting that it begins to crawl and walk before it can really talk. All it does is articulate these uh, sounds that are we would call a type of gibberish, which comes from Jabr ibn Hayyan, because the Europeans couldn't understand him, so they called everything that they couldn't understand gibberish. In other words, from Jabr. That's a true etymology. So the child learns to walk because walking is a purposeful activity, and human beings are purposeful. And so somebody said, and I think rightly so, that God had children learn before, walk before they could talk, because if it wasn't that way, every time they tried to walk, people would say, oh, you give it up, you'll never get it. You know? so, but a child just keeps doing it, keeps attempting to walk and get up, and it's amazing, it's purposeful. When you look at this thing about the tariq, being on the tariq. Walking, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, when he describes the servants of the Rahman, ibadul Rahman, alladheena yamshuna ala al-ardi hawna. They walk. What is walking? Walking is intentional. When you walk, it, you, you are exercising your will. It's a pure act of the will. And that's why children, this is the first thing they do. So setting out on a path is intentional. You are walking. And this is why... One of the most amazing things about Arabic, because I was looking at, you know, the Prophet ﷺ, he said, the, the Ra'id does not lie to his own people, his own family. The Ra'id is the one who's sent out to look for water. And this was very important in the Sahara or the desert or Arabia to look for water. So the Ra'id was the one who set out to look for water. Once he finds the water, he becomes a Dalil. So setting out on the path, you are setting out on... Sharia is a... Literally in Arabic, Sharia means a road to water. 
And this is the life-giving water that God has sent down from the heavens. Just like he sends water from the heavens, he sent revelation from heaven. So this is the life-giving water. So the sharia is a path to water. Now look at this. I saw in one of Sidi Ahmed Zarruq's book the word irtiyad, and I want to look, I was looking at the root of it, rada yarudu. Rada yarudu means to walk around. It's like looking for something. So the ra'id is the one who walks around looking for something. He's looking for water. And the Arabs say, rawaydan, go deliberately. And also they say, huwa rod. You know, he's walking deliberately. So rod, I wonder if road in English is from rod, you know, because rod is the path that you walk on. And so the ra'id is searching for something. And this is what human beings are. We are searchers. We're constantly searching. Children are always looking around. They're picking up rocks. They're looking under rocks. They're investigating constantly. Fakhruddin al-Razi said a proof that a search for cause is fundamental to the human intellect. Is He said you can take a child before it is aql, when it's still in that, just an infant that can't even talk. And he said if you hide and throw like a rock over its head and it lands in front of it, it will look behind it to see where it came from. It doesn't just assume it appeared into existence because this is the fitra of human beings. And so when we look at the universe, even a child knows that there has to be an origin of something. So this is the road that we're on, setting out for knowledge. So where does it begin? It begins with language. And this is why we have to acquire language. Our Prophet ﷺ was the most eloquent of people. Where did he go? When Abu Bakr said to him, when he said to him, that he was the most eloquent of people that spoke with the language of Dad. And the Arabs called their tongue the Loghat al-Dad. You know, it's a difficult uh, letter to say, and it was unique to, to the Arabs. The Prophet said, Because I am a Qurayshi, and I was raised amongst Banu Sa'd. Banu Sa'd were from the Hawazin Arabs. They, they're one of the eloquent tribes of the Arabs. So he was sent to learn the eloquence of that tribe. What's fascinating to me is he didn't say, well, that's the way God made me. No, he gave the sociological explanations for his eloquence. He said, I'm Qureshi and I grew up amidst the most eloquent of the desert Arabs because they had a, a pure Arabic. And if you look at the hadith of Halima Sa'diya, when you look at those hadiths of hers, they're very difficult hadiths. Because she's using all these difficult words. All her hadiths that she related need a dictionary. And that's who the Prophet got his words from. Frost, the great American poet, said that all of life begins with discipline. And the first discipline is the acquisition of words. Montaigne, the French philosopher, said most of the world's problems are grammatical. That is not an insignificant statement. Nietzsche, the German philosopher, said that... I'm afraid we haven't gotten rid of God because we still believe in grammar. And one of the fascinating things to me about the Islamic civilization is they were obsessed with grammar. They were obsessed with it. Our civilization gave us the first real dictionaries. The Jewish tradition got dictionaries from us. Before the Muslims, they did not have their dictionaries. The European dictionaries came very late. I mean, if you look in English, we don't have dictionaries from the time of Shakespeare. So some of the words, we have to guess at them. Uh, Johnson's Dictionary, which is 18th century, it's late. And that's the first serious dictionary. And it's not anywhere near as scientific as our dictionaries. When you look at something like Al-Ain, which shows up very early, Al-Khalil Al-Farahidi, it shows up very early. 8th century, they're already writing dictionaries. So 
this obsession with language was because they understood that revelation is in language and they wanted to understand language. So the, the first thing that we have to acquire is language. And a lot of us use words elastically. We don't really use words with a, a sound knowledge. And the way that you define things is by learning logic. And so these were the two really, really foundational sciences in the Muslim Ummah. It was grammar and then logic. You first learned grammar, and then you learned logic. And logic is the grammar of thought. So just as grammar is the logic of language, it shows you how language works. Uh, logic is the grammar of thought. It teaches you how to think. One of the really foundational texts of the late Islam, I mean, this is the last few hundred years, is a book called The Sulam. He was only 21 years old when he wrote it. Abdurrahman al-Akhdari is one of the great scholars from Baskara, which is now in uh, Algeria. But uh, he wrote this little text, and it's basically a versification of a famous text by Perfery called the Isagogi, which was a, an introduction uh, to logic. Um, but he, he says in that, that there's a difference of opinion about occupying yourself with logic, and there are three different opinions. And Ibn Salah and Imam Nawawi, he says Nawawi for the bait, Harama, they considered it prohibited. And another group said, no, you have to know it. And the soundest opinion is the one who is capable of understanding it should study it. The one who's practicing the book and the sunnah so that they can be guided to what's sound. And this is why Imam al Ghazali was the one who introduced logic into the methodology of the Usuli scholars. He actually, in his famous book called Al Mustasfa, the first 40 pages are an introduction to logic. And this is also what he introduced into the way of the Mutakallimin also. So these become very important tools in our tradition. This argument that logic is prohibited is. As far as I'm concerned, it's really something that's very dangerous because when Imam Nawawi said that it was haram, he was talking about a type of philosophy because at that time, logic was not separate from philosophy. It was actually studied as part of the peripatetic tradition, and they were worried about people going astray with this. That's why they prohibited it. It had nothing to do with the actual subject itself. It had to do with the people that were teaching it, and the methodology with which it was taught. But Imam al-Ghazali, who mastered Ibn Sina's work on logic, and then basically began to use it in his methodological approach, it becomes very important. And this is why our scholars always study And I'll tell you something. In what's currently called Saudi Arabia, in Medina, that there's a university there, which was started in the 1960s, to teach Islam to not just the Saudis, but internationally. But it focused on a certain school within Islam, which is the Salafi school. Now, the Salafi school originally was a Hanbali school. And there's a long history of how they became, they departed from the Madhab tradition. Because the early people, they, they're called Wahhabis. They don't like to be called Wahhabi, but these people traditionally were Hanbalis. But they had an Athari creed. And they did not like speculative kalam. They didn't like any of the Ash'ari or the Maturi tradition. But they had a great Mauritanian teacher there, Muhammad Ramina Shinqiti, who I, I was fortunate enough to actually have studied with his son and heard many stories about him. I lived in his house for a time when I was in Medina. So 
Muhammad Amin Shinqiti adopted, he, he left the Mauritanian Minhaj and adopted the Minhaj there. He was a brilliant scholar and he wrote a famous tafsir called Adwa al-Bayan. But because he was a master of usul al-fiqh and especially of the usul tradition, which is based on Imam al-Ghazali's work, because Ibn Qudama, who wrote Rawdat al-Nadir, which is the usul textbook of the Hanbari school, it's basically an abridgment of Imam al-Ghazali's usul. So to learn it without logic made it much more difficult. So he actually wrote, because they considered at that time it was prohibited to teach logic, he wrote a logic book for Medina University, but changed all the, he called it Adab al-Bahth wal-Munadhara. So he put all the logic in it, which is another science, Adab al-Bahth wal-Munadhara, which is related to logic. But he actually taught them logic without calling it logic because he knew how beneficial it was. So this idea that some Muslims have that they shouldn't use logic, it's just really, it's just not, uh, it's not healthy. Because part of the crisis that we're in is people aren't thinking clearly. Thinking and feeling are two ways in which human beings experience. We think things through and we feel things. And feelings are very important. But feelings should never override thinking when you're dealing with momentous matters. Feelings are much more important in things like love. Like you don't have an intellectual relationship with the one you love. I mean, you could. That could be part of the relationship. But that relationship that's founded in muadda and mahabba, that's not intellectual. That's something related to the emotions. It's, and it's very different. So thinking and feeling can become confused in people. And one of the things that logic teaches you is to check your feelings and to become more objective in approaching things. And also because in what's known as material logic, which looks at you know, what inheres inside thought, in material logic, you're actually taught the fallacies. So there's things, for instance, there's fallacies like collectivizing. It's, it's very common for people to make hasty generalizations. So if you have a bad experience, say you go to New York, and you have three cab drivers all from the same country. They're immigrants. And they cheat you, all three of them. And then you just assume all people from that country are thieves. That's crazy to do that. Because you're going to, by stereotyping people, uh, you're going to wrong people from that country that aren't cheaters or thieves. And then the other thing is to look at it that, Maybe they didn't cheat you. I mean, you might be wrong about that. That's uh, David Foster Wallace, uh, his approach in This is Water, that sometimes what we think is going on is not actually going on. It's in our minds. So these are aspects of our tradition that have been neglected for too long, and we really need to revive them. We need to revive the centrality of grammar, and we also need to revive again logic. And I will say in conclusion that my own my great-grandmother, which I inherited her logic book from my father, she studied logic as a high school student in Black Falls, Wisconsin. So it wasn't that long ago that, that just high school students were being taught this. And I think part of the problem that we're suffering from in the United States is just a lack of reasoning skills to think things through and to think deeply about things. And we need these tools. And they are tools. They're instruments. And we live in what's was traditionally termed a republic, which is a representational government. And Montesquieu, the great French political scientist and philosopher, he said that different governments have fundamental virtues. And he said that the virtue of a monarchy is honor. 
Like that's the virtue of a, a monarchy. Like they're, they're meant to be honorable. Noblesse oblige. You know, it's nobility obliges you to be honorable and noble. And then he said a democracy, like when you have a dictatorship, the fundamental component in a dictatorship is fear. You can't, you can't have a dictatorship without fear. You can't have a friendly tyrant. He has to scare people or it doesn't work. But he said that the virtue or the hallmark of a republic was education. You could not have a republic without an education. And they say that Ben Franklin, when he came out of the Continental Congress, they asked him, what kind of government do you have? He said, a republic, if you can keep it, meaning that it's a tough government to hold on to because it needs educated people. And the more educated people are, the more self-governing they are. The less self-governing of people are, the more necessary it is to bring in force to control them. And this is how tyrants end up taking over. They take over when things begin to break down. And in fact, in Aristotle's, what follows a republic is what he called a democracy, which was the rule of the mob, the demos. And then the next thing that follows is a tyranny, because the mob gets out of hand and rebels constantly and tears down things. And and then the, the tyrant comes in to set order straight. It's quite tragic. And then it begins to repeat itself, these patterns. So this is the human condition. But for us as Muslims, uh, the human condition doesn't change. The more it changes, the more it stays the same. They're cycles. These are cycles in history. And Ibn Khaldun identified them. And they really do, they don't repeat themselves exactly, but they're patterns that are discernible. And that's what's important to note. But always in the midst of this, no matter where you are, no matter who you are, no matter what your conditions are, you can always turn to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And the best way to turn to him is to set out to know him through knowledge.